Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come by, check us out. Um, uh, things are going great with us. We are bucking a lot of the larger media trends out there because we are not addicted to um, trying to make everybody furious at the latest Twitter outrage or whatnot. We're actually trying to like uh, value your time and give you what you need to know to be an informed person, um, and also offer our various uh, opinions that we think are, are, are well considered and um, all the rest, including occasionally from me. So um, when I reached out to our guest, who's a, a fan favorite and, uh, and a friend of mine, I did not realize at the time that he had recently already been on the sister dispatch podcast. And, um, uh, and the thing is, is that I think we can all agree that my, conversational style is somewhat different than my colleagues and so i don't worry too much about overlap but and also the simple fact is when it comes to moalithi moalithi is better so um we have we have momo here uh moalithi uh who's the executive director of the georgetown institute of politics and was a uh, the com- comms director for the democratic party a while back uh and he's a fellow fox news contributor uh, welcome back to the uh, Remnant, Mo. Great to have you. It's always good to be with you, Jonah, and, and I appreciate the invitation to come back. So um, I'm going to just throw out a theory. A, 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 uh, it's not a hot take. I think it's, it's in the medium-warm range uh, that channels a lot of my uh, life. I used to work for Ben Wattenberg, who was one of the original who's famously called Reagan's favorite Democrat. And he was the, one of the founders of something called the Coalition for the Democratic Majority, which led to the DLC, which led to the comeback of the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton, whatnot. And now the DLC is, is a answer to a very high-level political trivia conversation, as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, there was this new study out from Pew. It's written about in today's New York Times by Nate Cohn. And the, the, the top line takeaway is that all of the predictions about um, a massive base mobilization turnout to take back the White House in 2020 really didn't pan out. Biden essentially underperformed with all of those sort of Obama coalition constituencies, for want of a better term, um, not by huge margins, right? He did win. But the, the real margin of victory and the real impressive gains that he had were among traditionally moderate and conservative voters, like 16% of self-described liberal or moderate Republicans. He um, 
cut the gender gap in half because he did so well with married men and improved his standing with um uh with Catholics generally. And um and so I take this to as an excuse to pound my spoon on my high chair about something I've been writing about for a while, which is that I think Biden made a mistake by listening to those liberal historians about the his opportunity for a new New Deal, about going big, about being transformative, and that his earlier messaging about being a transitional president um, and a return to normalcy president is uh, what he was largely elected for, at least in terms of um, the the voters who gave him his margin of victory. And, and one last point that Cohen makes, which I think is really interesting, is that for all the talk about how well Trump did with Hispanics, um, at least vis-a-vis expectations and whatnot, um, Biden's performance with um, moderates, married men, et cetera, um, far eclipses that. And that segment of the electorate is much larger than the segment of the electorate taken up by Hispanics. And so part of my argument would be maybe Biden just needs a do-over. And you can see the opportunities for this echoed in the New York mayoral election. Um, you can see this in the uh, the fight over the traditional infrastructure bill where you get a, where a bunch of Republicans got on board and a bunch of moderate Democrats led by Manchin and Cinema are trying to craft a faction of moderate Democrats. Um, what do you think about the idea of Joe Biden basically getting a do over? I'm not saying go full bore sister soldier or anything like that, but basically saying, look, I was elected to be a moderate. I am a moderate. I was elected to, to make deals. And this agenda of that would have been hard with 60 votes in the Senate is largely impossible with 50 votes when you're struggling for 50 votes in the Senate. And instead, much like Bill Clinton did um, early in his presidency, uh, just basically start over and tack back to the center and be a centrist Democrat, which I would argue would be not only good for the Democratic Party in terms of pure electoral stuff, which, you know, I'm not deeply invested in the Democratic Party, but also be good for the country because uh, right now we basically have, it's not a sun and moon party system anymore. It's two moons. We kind of have a jump ball situation where neither party is really speaking to the center of the country, either on policy or on rhetoric. Um, And moving the Democratic Party rightward towards the center would be um, a path for would actually be transformational for the Democratic Party in terms of making them a majority party. Um, But it would also be good for the country because it would um, reward the people in this country who are not radical on the left or the right, but are sort of want sort of traditional centrist, you know, reform, but not transformation or revolution or any of that kind of stuff. Have at it. I know that was a long introduction. So not surprisingly, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying and would probably and probably approach the rest of it a little bit differently. Um, I mean, when you look at the election, the, elec- the election results, I mean, it was a close election in a lot of states, right? Um, and I don't want to discount the importance of the Democratic base and what Biden did with the Democratic base in 2020. Um, because you're right, he didn't 
reach Obama levels, but he did certainly come closer to Obama levels than Democrats did in 2016. Mm -hmm. He did increase base turnout. Um, And so, you know, when you're looking at a state like Wisconsin or Michigan or Georgia with razor thin margins or Arizona with razor thin margins, it's just as easy. You could just as easily point to the Democratic base for for pushing him over the top um, as you could to the fact that he did make tremendous inroads um, with voters that have been a little bit more elusive to Democrats. Um, But having said that, he did get those inroads with voters that are more elusive to Democrats. And that can't be ignored either. Um, There were a lot of people out there who voted for him. He did cut the the gender gap, as you said. He did um, win a a greater percentage of white voters than Democrats did in 2016. Um, So, you know, it really was more of a coalition victory than I think we're used to seeing in recent elections. I think where I think about this a little bit differently is I, and you and I've talked about this before. I don't think the left versus right paradigm really is as, is as important as it once was. And this notion of tacking to the left or the center or the right. Um, I, I don't think that's how voters think about it. I, I don't think voters voted. I don't think a lot of people voted for Joe Biden because they saw him as a centrist. I think a lot of voters voted for Joe Biden because they saw they felt like the country was going to hell in a handbasket and they wanted someone who could turn the temperature down and could get results and i think that's what he's trying to do um i think he has been resistant to some of the the strongest urges from from the political left right he has been he's pushed back for example and this goes back to the campaign right on mm-hmm. defund the police he has pushed back on um, some of the size and scope of uh, the policy positions that the left is pushing, m- maybe not for ideological reasons, but because of his realism, because his, of his pragmatism, and because he looks at the numbers and says, we're not going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If I can get a scaled-down version of an infrastructure bill passed that's still going to help people, then that's what we're going to do. I'm not going to risk tanking the whole thing because it doesn't have everything we want in it. And so in many ways, I think he is delivering or at least still trying to deliver on those dual promises of I'm going to turn down the temperature and I'm going to get results. Now, sometimes he picks one over the other, right? The COVID relief bill, he chose results. He's, you know, that one was straight party line. Um, a lot of Republicans threw up their hands, but here's the thing: it, 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 at least the polling would tell you voters certainly aren't punishing him for that. Mm-hmm. They they like the results uh, of what that uh, of what that COVID relief bill is going to do. And On neither infrastructure, are re- just to make the point, neither are elected Republicans. They're, it's like that vote never happened. They right, they've just completely stopped uh, focusing on it, and I think that's because they see the political reality of right. that. Um, the infrastructure plan, um, you know, he's out there selling it now. He's selling the bipartisan nature of it alongside, um, from a messaging perspective, the results and how it's going to help everyday people. The next big test is going to be the next big bill, right? The, what he's calling the American families plan, um, which feels like it's going to be a lot more contentious in Washington than maybe the other two. 
Um, and maybe that does go to a party line vote. Um, but he's not talking about it as a left versus right thing. He's talking about the impact it's going to have on people. And he's going to push back on, on, on those on the right who try to discount it. And he's going to push back uh, uh, on those on the left who are saying it doesn't do enough. Um, so, you know, I don't think he needs, I don't think he should fall back into the mistake that too many people in this town make, which is looking at the left versus right paradigm. I've long argued that the left versus right paradigm outside of the Beltway has shifted to a front versus back paradigm. Um, that people feel let down, people who feel like they're stuck at the back of the line are feeling let down by the people they see at the front of the line. They feel let down by their institutions. They feel let down um, by the elites. And they're just looking for someone who's going to help them. And Joe Biden has been, you know, maybe uniquely positioned to make that case in a believable way to the greatest number of voters than almost anyone else in politics today. Donald Trump was able to make that case to his voters, mm-hmm. not to everybody else. Biden was able to take some of those voters away from Trump with, with a message that's more about results and helping everyday people. And, and that's working for him right now, uh, you know, six months, seven months into his, into his presidency. So I, I take your point about left versus right. Um, I will I will bitterly cling to my seating chart of the French National Assembly understanding of the universe uh, to some degree. But um, I think you're right. I mean, obviously, in the sense that we live in a we've been living in a long tail of a populist moment for a while. And the front versus back thing applies better to populism than left versus right. You know, I mean, if you go back and you look at with the Tea Party accepted. And even there, there are caveats like keep your hands off my Medicare. Um, Almost every populist movement um, had strong cultural elements that you could call right wing and strong economic elements that you could call left wing. And that's true of the know nothings. It's true of Father Coughlin's movement, which was such a weird hybrid. It's true. You know, like what was it? um, uh, Wallace got. Um, you know, did shockingly well in Massachusetts, you know, in Boston, you know, with a sort of, uh, bigoted us versus them, you know, cultural message and a economically populist kind of message. Huey Long, and you just go down a very long list. And, and so I, I, I grant you all of that at the same time, I don't know, you know, we haven't talked about where you come down on, you know critical race theory, real and imagined, and you don't have to go do it down too far a rabbit hole on that. But there are enormous opportunities, I think. I mean, defund the police is a good example, and you're right that he rejected it in the primaries. But that was, and this is a hobby horse of mine on this podcast, if you would just go back and look at the polling when the uh, defund the police was most omnipresent in you know, every day on MSNBC, they were talking about defund the police at one to one extent or another. And it, ha- it was sucking up all of this messaging oxygen to the point where Jim Clyburn almost started cutting himself. And um, you had, if you looked at the actual polling, a tiny fraction of blacks and Hispanics 
were in favor of actually defunding the police. The polling I've seen, and I've written about a bunch, had the vast majority of, of communities of color saying they wanted the same amount or more policing. And a tiny fraction said they wanted less policing, which again is very different than no policing, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I understand that, th- that those kinds of dog whistles, uh, which is what they would be called by a lot of activists on the left, um, create problems for Biden. But if you look at the, the mayoral election in New York, if you look at all these things, there are so many opportunities on a call it a cultural thing, not a left, right thing for Biden to signal that he rejects the craziness in a much more forceful way that I think would be appealing to, um, lots of the, lots of the, the, constituencies that the ba- the activist base claims to represent while at the same time in a Clintonian way triangulating against those people. I mean, it would be useful for Joe Biden in a lot of states to be attacked for forcefully coming out on, uh, you know, on, on the crime issue. And I think, you know, I think Josh Kraushauer is right that he missed an opportunity when he gave his big talk last week about crime. And he basically made a muddled conventional anti-gun speech rather than sort of trying to signal that he was hearing people's concerns. And, um, and so it doesn't have to be a left, right thing. That's part of the up, down or front back kind of stuff as well. And it has cross, it is transpartisan appeal. And at the very least it makes right wing sort of cable news, Twitter demagoguery about Biden, a harder sell. Um, uh, anyway, look, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know that anything is can. Given our current media ecosystem, I'm not sure anything he did would make uh, anything a harder sell, right? Like, and, and let's stick with the defund the police argument. You're right, a fraction, a fraction of black and Hispanic voters. Uh, said they agreed with that message. And simultaneously, a fraction, a very small fraction of Democratic candidates and office holders embraced that position, right? During the, during, the, during the last election, a majority, I mean, the overwhelming majority of Democratic candidates were saying, I don't support that. That's not where I'm at. That did not stop the... Um, the right wing echo chamber from suddenly painting a picture of an entire party held hostage by that position. Mm -hmm. The facts just do not bear that out. And in fact, after getting elected, you know, and you've, and you've seen this argument, Chris Wallace made this argument, uh, just our, our colleague just this past weekend on Fox news Sunday, he actually put increased funding for police in the COVID relief bill. Uh, that Republicans voted against. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, y- and you've seen that fight kind of blow up over the past week about, you know, when push came to shove, it was not the Democratic Party that actually voted to take money away from police, um, you know, to the contrary. And, you know, so the actions are there. The record is there. Um, 
does that mean he has to stand up and you know and beat his chest and have a a finger wagging in the face of the squad moment uh, in order to break through? I, I that's not his style, right? That's not who Joe Biden is. He's not that guy who's going to get in the face of uh, of folks. You know, what he's saying is, look at what I have said and look at what I have done, and that tells you where I am and where I'm going to go. Um, maybe there's just no room for that softer touch anymore, um, particularly in the media ecosystem that we are living in. And you're right. It, MSNBC gave a lot of oxy- oxygen to this, uh, just as Fox did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they both, I think that was a disservice to this discussion because it just wasn't representative of where we were. And we could go down this list of other big quote unquote cultural issues where you can say the same thing, that there's really no evidence that 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 Biden is being held hostage by some crazy lefty agenda, uh, whether it's critical race theory or defund the police or what have you. Um, but the, I think the media ecosystem we're living in and the political environment we are in right now uh, doesn't lend itself to, uh, you know, it, it, the, the incentive is there to say he is. Um, and, um, you know, and, and I think that is the complication is he's not the, he's not a guy who will get confrontational on some of this stuff, no, even I, when he's not supportive of it. So and I think you're right that he's not, the, he, he's not temperamentally wired that way, but that's not an argument against the wisdom of my argument. It is an argument about why my argument is difficult to implement. I mean, look at it. Let me, let me take it out of the context of Biden for a second. The GOP has a huge problem. Forget and forget Trump for a second. Let's just talk about some really low hanging fruit, easy targets. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, uh, Lauren Bobbitt. These people are gargoyles as far as I'm concerned. And one of the things that I think has always been true in politics, because I hate popular front politics in every era, but one of the things that is really true in this media ecosystem that we both agree is, is, is toxic is that if you don't affirmatively denounce the people who are allegedly speaking in your name or on your side, people will, to varying degrees of legitimacy or fairness, assume that you don't have a problem with. And the whole sort of, why haven't you commented on this? Why haven't you denounced that? Why haven't you um, condemned the other thing? Culture that the media loves um, and that partisans on both sides love is just different. And so the media, you know, like you're right. Biden comes from a different era. I've all, I've long argued, he was never really a centrist. He was a centrist within the context of the Democratic Party. And so he was like, he came up in an era where he was balancing the, the, the sort of Sam Nunn right wing of the Democratic Party against the sort of more left wing, you know, part of the Democratic Party. And, um, and that's the experience that he kind of comes from. But when you're president, you get the media and political landscape that you have, not the one that you want. Yeah. And I'm not saying you should do this off the cuff or haphazardly, but. If he could pick his moment, pick, you know, you know, I mean, the, the, the 
sister soldier thing or the, you know, whatever you think about Bill Clinton's stuff about Lonnie Guineer, you know, find, um, find the moment where there's something that on a fund in a fundamental way, it, consistent with his actual political and moral character, he profoundly disagrees with and pick a fight because that's what politics is. That's how people score politics generally is who you're fighting against. And it seems to me that, yeah, Democratic presidents get in a lot of trouble going back a long ways when they lose the loyalty of their base. But the other part of it is, is that the base has nowhere else to go for the time being. And creating a culture where the base no longer talks about a new New Deal, but actually understands that slow and steady progress on their terms, maybe not on my terms, that would be good for the Democratic Party. And, um, and I think good for the country. And so even though he doesn't, he may not like doing it, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't do it, is I guess well, what I'm I think, saying. And I think, that, but I think there's also another calculation. I think Joe Biden and his team are rolling the dice and making a bet that while that's how politics used to be scored, that might not be how people want to score it right now. Mm-hmm. You know, people in our world do. People in, in, that are trapped inside this, you know, uh, this media ecosystem do. People on the, in, you know, on Twitter do. But I think he's sort of trying to, and and I think his team would argue this, right? That they're betting that's not how people. Uh, real people, real voters want to score the game anymore. At least not right now, that they're a little mm-hmm. bit tired of it after, particularly after the last four years. And that um, rather than look at, uh, look at which fights you're, you're, you're um, willing to pick, um, what are you willing to actually do? That would be, I think, what you know, my good friend Ron Klain would say what what the, most of the people surrounding the president would say. And so, you know, there's a lot of noise around defund the police. Um, there's a lot of noise in some circles around critical race theory, but I think that's very, I think those circles are very limited. Um, but what's the president doing, right? He's going out there and he's talking about infrastructure. He's talking about, um, you know, the continued uh, recovery, economic recovery. And I think they're they're betting that when push comes to shove, that coalition he was able to build last time, the communities with which in which he made inroads last time that we talked about earlier, that that's what they're going to focus on and not the noise that uh that gets you and i excited sometimes we won't know if they're right uh for some time right we're not going to know the polling would say so far he is but we won't know until we take a look at the midterms and we take a look at um uh at the next presidential election the midterms are where i think it's going to be really interesting right because while i think this approach will serve well serve him well and they believe that this approach will serve him well. How is this going to play out down ballot? We mm-hmm. saw we saw that question um, uh, play out in 2020 when th- there was nothing the right could do, nothing the Trump campaign could do 
to make the socialism argument stick to Joe Biden. But they sure made it stick to a couple of members of Congress, Democratic incumbents in South Florida, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, flipped a couple of seats that no one saw as flippable a few months earlier. So how down-ballot candidates uh, react and deal with this is going to be really interesting, right? I'm still fascinated by that reported dust-up in a House Democratic caucus meeting a couple months ago, you'll remember, when um, Abigail Spanberger, the centrist Democrat from Central Virginia, stood up in a session and railed against those members of the caucus that were pushing the defund the police message. Mm -hmm. She barely uh, got reelected. And she blames that. How will candidates in what few remaining swing districts exist anymore, how will they push back on it is going to be an interesting uh, question uh, to look at. But the party's record, both in Congress and in the White House, gives them something to point to, right? We, We have total control and we're not even pushing. We're not even talking about this. Um, and, um, you know, maybe that, uh, and we're not for it. Maybe that, that gives them, uh, enough cover coupled with the positive results, um, that the president's going to point to on, uh, the recovery, you know, and, and possibly infrastructure. So, uh, one last thing on all this, um, I was listening to, uh, Sean Trendy talk to Bill Crystal on Bill's podcast and, he had this interesting little digression that um, taps into some stuff I've been thinking about a bit. He says there's a throwaway line. Sean was saying there's a throwaway line in in Michael Barone's most recent book, floating a possibility, which is that the rise of polling and regression analysis and all of that witchcraft uh, begins in the 19. 19- 30s, right? That's when you first get sort of scientific polling come online. And for about a generation or two, you have um, this massive bump in the snake of public opinion that has their formative experience being the Great Depression. And as a result, pollsters and political scientists and politicians have for completely understandable reasons, always assumed that economics, the economic pocketbook issues were the decisive issue in elections because they were (laughs) right, but they don't have to be. And if you go back and you look at the 19th century, the stuff I was talking about with, with populism, uh, a lot of that stuff cut very, very differently. You know, uh, people voted on a really weird menu of things. And some of it had to do with anti-English or, you know, East coast, West coast or regional, or obviously, you know, slavery and Jim Crow, all those kinds of things, which are not necessarily pigeonholable into, you know, it's the economy stupid. And in the Barone thesis, it's not, I don't want to I don't want to ascribe it as a thesis. I haven't read the book yet, but the idea that he floats is that, Maybe as we've achieved a certain level of requisite sufficient prosperity, even among, you know, the poor, um, for the most part, and certainly the middle class, the salience of economic issues recedes quite a bit. And now the new um, fault line really is this, 
as you might put it, front back or or cultural divide stuff and all of the rest. And um, and it's an interesting way to think about it, about how basically, you know, I mean, if 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 on your radar screen, economics always looms as the number one issue for your entire career, it's very difficult to recognize some other object <laughs> in yeah. in the radar screen. And so what if, you know, you're, you're, you've said a couple times now, he's going to run on the booming economy and prosperity and, and all of that. Um, but we've had really serious economic dislocations mm-hmm. in the last 10 years. And we've had really serious boom times in the last 10 years. And yet the electorate has remained remarkably sta- stable yeah. in its equal equilibrium. So I mean, what do you think about all that? And, and I'm going to correct you a little bit. I don't know that I believe he's going to run on booming economy and prosperity as much as he's going to run on results to help people. And I think that's an important distinction. That's fair. That's fair. Right. Because I would actually agree, and I'm, I may be in the minority on this. I don't even think Bill Clinton's 1992 election was about the economy, stupid. I mm-hmm. really don't. Right? The core of his message was fighting for the forgotten middle class. Mm-hmm. The economy was just the policy, the issue that was the proof point mm-hmm. of that. But the message, right, was speaking to a to a whole group of people in in the middle, middle class, middle America, who were feeling left behind, who were feeling ignored. That I think is the fault line. That I think is is what drives us. Sometimes economic issues are the proof point. Sometimes cultural issues are the proof point. Sometimes justice issues are the proof point. I think we are living in an era right now where all three of those are proof points, depending on who you are talking to, mm-hmm. right? What cable news network you watch and and uh, what motivates you. It's geographic. The urban-rural divide is incredibly uh, uh, wide right now. And so when you think back to the, the candidates over the past, you know, uh, 25 30 40 years the candidates who were the most successful it were the ones they were the ones who got that point right that the you know when i think about populism i think about it as you know this notion of the streets versus the elites that people are feeling uh disassociated from the institutions that are supposed to be serving them. And, you know, you look at the history of our politics going back to 92 and and actually probably even going back to Watergate, the Watergate era with Jimmy Carter, right? The candidates who won were the ones who said, I get that you feel alienated by the system. I get that you feel neglected and overlooked by the system. And I'm going to look out for you. That helped elect Jimmy Carter in 76. It helped elect uh, Ronald Reagan in some ways in 80, Bill Clinton in 92, Barack Obama in 08, Donald Trump in 16. And I think Joe Biden was able to connect the dots amongst a few different communities that were all feeling the same way, better than Democrats have been able to recently. So when when I think about, you know, Joe Biden ran sort of on, uh, on, on a dual message of I can help unify the country 
and I can get results. That's what I think he's going to run on. And when he can tie those two things together, like all the better. That's why he's like throwing his weight behind this infrastructure bill and starting to travel around the country and why he's resisting the calls from those in his own party who are telling him uh, that it doesn't go far enough and we should hold out for more. Because he's able to go out there and say, people feel let down. They're tired of the bickering. They're tired of the fighting. They don't care one bit about which ideology is up uh, and which one is down. What are you doing for me? That's what they're asking. And he can now say, I've actually able, at least on this one issue, been able to crack the code, bring people together and doing this for you. That's what I think he's going to run on, right? It's less about a certain policy. It is about helping people, restoring people's faith in the institutions that are supposed to serve them. So I think that's all defensible, much in the same way that you were saying that he's not wired to do the things I want him to do. I think his wiring might make some of that difficult for him to do as well. Um, But I mean, and just for clarity's sake, I'm not coming to this out of a burning, yearning desire to see Joe Biden reelected. You know, (laughs) I'm coming to this uh, from a more 30,000 foot level of seeing two parties that look to me, take Joe Biden out of it, that the, the two parties in the aggregate look to me like they are determined to stay minority parties (laughs) and, and in a, um, and the, for someone like me, who's, who's, you know, a conservative, even if I'm somewhat politically homeless these days, um, you know, the goal of the conservative movement rightly understood going back 50 years, um, wasn't to make the Republican party, the end, what the ends weren't to make the Republican party an ideologically conservative party. That was a means to the ends of moving the center of gravity of American politics rightward. Now, some of the ways rightward were defined 50 or 75 years ago, I profoundly disagree with, right? I mean, I've always said, even though I worked at National Review for 21 years, it was National Review, or at least a lot of writers at National Review, were wrong about things like the civil rights era. They just simply were, and conservatives need to admit it. And then you can get into the details about, you know, uh, you know, where they were coming from or which writers don't deserve as much blame as other writers and all the rest. But as a simple, broad moral point, they were wrong. They're just simply wrong. And in part because of this thing I was talking about before about not denouncing the people allegedly on your own side who were profoundly wrong to distinguish yourself and distinguish your arguments from other people's arguments. So, but anyway, the, my goal here or my hope here would be ideally, I would prefer that the Republican party, shed itself of Trumpism and all that and become the majority party in the United States. Um, But short of that, I still think it would be a net benefit because the center of gravity of American politics would move rightward and, and towards a more centrist position if the Democratic Party moved away from this idea that the moral authority of the, I hate this, term the squad or the Bernie Sanders agenda is the ultimate goal of the Democratic Party. And I think Biden is in a place to help with that project. And that's why I would encourage it. Yeah. Whether or not it gets him elected. And and who knows, you know, whether or not he will. 
maybe part of the reason he's not doing it more forcefully is because it's not taking hold, right? It's not taking, it, it is not the majority position of the Democratic Party. It is not the majority position of the Democratic caucus in either the House or the Senate. And it's certainly not the majority position of the Demo- of Democratic electorate. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't know. Is, so, is that true? I mean, the, the, I mean, just to push back a little bit, the, the median African-American voter, which used to sort of define, you know, the left wing base of the Democratic Party is more conservative than the median member of the Democratic caucus in the House, I would argue these days. I mean, the black ladies who elected Joe Biden in South Carolina in the primary are probably more conservative than, um, you know, certainly the progressive caucus in the in the in, yeah. in Congress. I, well, look, it also depends on what we're talking about. Right. And what issue we're talking about. Sure. Um, where, you know, it's not the, the agenda, um, isn't, um, being viewed wholesale, I think by any group of voters, I think Democrats are happy to stand shoulder to shoulder with the most progressive wing of the party on issues like voting rights on issues, right. Uh, on climate issues, maybe the difference there is just a matter of degrees than, uh, than a matter of direction. Um, on Green New Deal versus a scaled back approach, but they're at least sort of in the same ballpark. That is not, though, true on issues like defunding the police. Um, uh, I hate to keep coming back to that singular issue, but it has been such a dominant talking point, right? That is not where a majority of you know the the uh, of black women voters are. It's not a, where a majority of Democratic primary voters are. And so it's a little bit easier to push back on that and, frankly, to ignore it within the Democratic caucus. Um, Maybe there does need to be something a little bit more forceful because it is still getting so much oxygen in the media ecosystem. But, um, uh, you know, I think the calculus that, like, we're not talking about it because we're not going to do it. Instead, we're going to go off and build more bridges and roads. And the calculus being that's what's going to matter at the end of the day a little bit more. All right. Well, to be determined later. <laughs> we will find out. We yeah. will find out. Yeah. Um, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, um, and I want to just say up front, I appreciate that you've resorted to zero whataboutism um about the republican party with me uh, i got plenty to, I, i'm happy to go there <laughs> i know you are and i understand the 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 in, in, instinctual drive that would make you want to do that i mean of, of course the problem is is that i would probably just agree with vast swaths right. swath of it so it, <laughs> it doesn't it has you know your your what about is what up what about is weapons have no power over me but um i still i appreciate because i hate that that form of argumentation but um let's move forward a little bit you um at the georgetown institute of politics you guys did a um a poll recently about what voters prioritize and whatnot why don't you walk us through a little bit about what it says and what what your takeaways from it are yeah this month uh, is the 30th anniversary of the battleground poll which is a poll that's conducted by legendary republican pollster ed goaz and legendary democratic pollster selinda lake they've been doing this together for about 30 years, and, and they moved it over to our institute a couple of years ago. We added a new dimension to it uh, on civility in politics, where we were very interested in tracking over time voter attitudes towards civility. How bad do they think it is? Who do they blame? Uh, how much do they really want it? 
The poll showed um, we we just got out of the field a couple of weeks ago, and 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 a couple of things caught my eye. Number one, when we ask people what's the most important issue to them, uh, the most important issue facing the country to them, the top answer for the first time uh, by a plurality of voters was political division in our country. That is more than uh, government spending. That is more than voting. That is more than COVID. Um, a plurality of voters rank the political division in our country as either the number one or number two biggest concern uh, to them in their lives. Um, and it cut across all demographics. Democrats and Republicans said that. Black, white, brown said that. Urban and rural said that. Um, and I found that very interesting. We also asked them, how bad do they think that division is? On a scale of zero to 100, zero being no division, 100 being brink of civil war. And the mean response was 76, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty high. Not the highest we have seen it. The highest we, we saw it was back in January when we just happened to be in the field when the insurrection happened. Right. Um, we've come down a couple of points and then we ask people to project out a year. How bad do you think it will be a year from now? Uh, people are slightly more optimistic. Uh, they, they think that number will be at about a 69. So still not great, but certainly headed in the right direction. Um, how much do you really want? the uh, more civility and how much do you want this polarization to go away is always the what i'm really focused on because i do believe that politicians have a lot to do with the problem the media has a lot to do with the problem special interests have a lot to do with the problem social media platforms have a lot to do with the problem and voters blame all of them but i'm always curious what the role of the voter is uh in the polarization we typically ask a question you know, how, do you want more civility? And it's always 90 plus percent say yes. Um, in our previous polling, we've asked the question a little bit differently. Agree or disagree with the following statement. Number one, common ground and compromise are noble goals I want, our le- I want my leaders to aspire to. And like 78%, I'm sorry, 87% say they agree with that. Right? 87% of people typically will say, yes, I think our, we should have more compromise and common ground. Then the very next question, agree or disagree. I am tired of leaders who compromise on my values. I want them to stand up and fight the other side. 84% say they agree with that, which really leaves a cloudy picture, right, for your political leaders. Mm -hmm. So we decided to push and, and kind of force people to choose a little bit this time. And we asked them if they have a choice between a politician who is willing to reach out across the aisle in order to get results, even if that means compromising on my values sometimes, versus a politician who is always standing up for my values, always fighting for me, never compromising, even if it means we don't get results, Mm -hmm. it's not even a choice. It's like 70% support the first one, the politician who is willing to compromise on my values to get results. 
And I think as we're looking at both parties right now, and this debate over should we or should we not embrace any form of bipartisanship, and let's be honest, both parties are are talking about this internally, right? Probably more on the Democratic side right now. Republicans seem a little less interested in bipartisanship. But this is a big debate that's happening in Washington. Voters, at least based on this poll, um, have kind of settled it in their own minds that generally, if it means results that are going to help me, I'm willing to give something up. Mm -hmm. Now, as with every poll question, right, the devil's in the details, we also happen to do a series of discussion groups, I'm sorry, of focus groups uh, with different constituencies. And they say the same thing, but then we start pushing them on certain issues and you start to get a little bit more hemming and hawing. Yeah. Well, maybe I don't want compromise on this one issue. But when we ask them the types of issues that they actually want their politicians to compromise on, it's the stuff we were talking about earlier, right? It is the economic stuff. Mm -hmm. It is stuff like spending. It is stuff like infrastructure. They are willing to have compromise on that. Maybe on the, some of the more cultural issues, they aren't. Um, but you know, abortion, for example, on both sides, they're far less willing to compromise. And so as Washington's dealing with issues like infrastructure and COVID relief and the, the next wave of, 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 um, relief bills that the president's going to put forward, I just think it's interesting that what we're seeing again on Twitter and what we're seeing on cable news and what we're seeing in the halls of Congress isn't exactly where the voters are. Shocking, right? Um, yeah, so, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot in there. Um, let me ask you this, this way has, is forget whether it's good for the country. Do you think Twitter is good for the democratic party? I can't separate, uh, those two points. I think okay. it is bad. I think it is bad for the country. So I think it is bad for the politicals. I think it is bad for politics. Let me mm-hmm. say that. Right. I love I love my Georgetown basketball Twitter. Right. Like right. that. I, I, I would never want to give up. Uh, but I think it is terrible for politics. And I understand the argument that some people make that it democratizes, you know, uh, that everyone can be part of the conversation. But they're not. It's three percent of the country and it is disproportionately impacting what people both in the media and in politics do. So I think it is bad for politics as it is in its current form. Yeah, I mean, because it was there was I think it was Brian Riedel from my friend Brian Riedel, and if I got it wrong, I apologize. He had a really interesting tweet the other day where, going through some, some survey or some data, found that among the highly politically engaged, right, which is like three percent, you know, it's like three percent of Twitter users are responsible for like eighty percent of the tweets or something crazy like that, but whatever, sort of blue check mark, politically engaged Twitter is um there is a massive if it were a poll it would be like dems plus 15 or 20 or something like that and um and he was making the point that if it were a state only like hawaii would be a more democratic state um (laughs) and if it were a congressional district it would be the most left-wing district in the country and you know part of the thing that that left that analysis leaves out is that the the minority 
Republican part of that district would be the most crazy right wing, you know, minority. You don't normally have like it's not like Hawaii is 60 whatever percent Democrat and 40 percent, you know, hardcore MAGA. You know, so the problem is, is the distorting effect of the conversation on Twitter yes. is so toxic because it's so distorting of what the actual conversation, even among, even between serious Republicans and serious Democrats in real life. Um, and, and so can I, give it, can, go ahead. can I give an anecdote to illustrate the point? So you know, I'm a Democrat on Fox, right? Like, I, I feel like I got to put on my flak jacket every day uh, when I'm on the air uh, as soon as I turn to Twitter, right? If you look at my Twitter feed after any of my appearances on Fox, it just validates the dark side of humanity, just the mm -hmm. nastiness that comes at me. Probably not too dissimilar from some of the things you get, given, yeah. you know, where you are, right? But it's terrible. But I will tell you, pre-pandemic, I, I traveled a lot. And I would be in an airport somewhere or taking my kids to an amusement park somewhere. Mm -hmm. And invariably somebody would come up to me with, with some variation of the following conversation. Hey, you're that Democrat on Fox, right? Yes. I don't agree with you very often, but I like hearing what you have to say. I don't agree with you very often, but you said something the other day that made me think. I don't agree with you very often, but you don't have horns and a tail. <laughs> and it was, again, it's anecdotal. Sure. Right? Like, I don't know the proportion, but it, I think it illustrates the point you're making, that what we are seeing on Twitter, which is driving so much of our national dialogue, is not how most people react to um, issues, to, you know, to, uh, to political leaders. It, it is very, very skewed. Yeah. And I, 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 and so, I mean, I think that there is a, a real disservice done by both parties manifests itself in different ways. And I'm not saying it's symmetrical or, you know, it's not a both sides thing, but, um, the degree to which like Republicans, particularly like younger comms and activists and, 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 you know, very online uh, young journalists think about issues is that they they are in this funhouse, right? I mean, they're 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 only seeing the shadows on the wall of Plato's cave, right? And not the things casting the shadows. And so the way they talk about things, because they only get the 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 validation they get is for being jerks often. I mean, just to be blunt about it, because that's a sign of courage. That's a sign you're willing to fight, yada, yada, yada. And the people who, I mean, it's amazing how if I, every now and then I'll tweet something that condemns something that some liberal wrote, but I will give some benefit of the doubt. Like maybe they made a mistake or, um, um, I would like, you know, I would hope that they would retract this later when they realize that. And the, people on my side who go nuts dunking on me for being an accommodationist and not, and for not, you know, immediately going to 11 on the dehumanization scale. And these people are the enemy is amazing to me. And, and I know the same thing happens on the left, you know? Um, and it seems to me like if I were a Congress you know, if I were a congressman or a senator, I would be 
I would be very eager on either side to consider the, my social media department to be very low on the totem pole <laughs> in, in the hierarchy of my office. You know, I would not like, how's it playing on Twitter would not be my first question. And yet one of the things that drives me crazy about the Republican party is that there a lot of these congressmen, and I talk about this a lot, they're closing or not setting up any legislative stuff. You know, they're not doing policy stuff. Instead, they're doubling and tripling down on social media and comm stuff as if that's the job of being a congressman. And, um, and, but the problem with the incentive structure of like small donors and cable news and the Fox primary and all these kinds of things seems to reward that. And I just don't know how you break that cycle. Um, and yeah, I'm wondering if you have I, any I, ideas. I don't know either. I think about this a lot, you know, and, and as a former political communications guy, like I get it, right? I mean, I worry, I, you know, I was a longtime press secretary and communications director. I worried about how the press was covering something, even though I oftentimes knew that the way the press was covering something was not necessarily how voters would react to something. You know, uh, I came up in politics pre-Twitter like the press was the filter. So mm -hmm. I get it, right? Like I, I get understanding how that perception is impactful. I look at it now. And if I was a congressional staffer, I'd be really focused on Twitter because it seems like that is where media groupthink is, mm -hmm. is, is being born. Um, and you got to stay on top of that. So wondering how something is, I, I would be less concerned about how activists are or how, you know, random people were. I would be more concerned because the press then has a, has a history of shaping narrative. And that's very concerning, but they can still get it wrong. And mm -hmm. a great example of that is the outgoing governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam. Who you know you'll recall uh, was faced with controversy. I guess what was that like two years ago now? Yeah, feels like an eternity ago. Um, when photos surfaced allegedly showing him at a medical school party as one of he was one of two uh, 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 either a guy in blackface or a guy in a KKK hood. Um, and dealer's choice, you know. <laughs> and it was a media and twitter frenzy yeah everybody because of the reaction we were seeing on social media every serious democrat started calling for his resignation and he survived his polling numbers stayed steady and have since gotten stronger and driven primarily by his support in virginia's black community mm -hmm. and we could probably devote an entire episode deconstructing why that was, but it just showed the utter disconnect yeah. between the Twitterverse and real voters. And Northam saw that and, and stuck it out and went through a couple of really ch difficult months politically, but is going to leave office with incredibly high approval ratings. Despite all that, Twitter could not have been more wrong. And if there's one thing that Twitter is very good at, it's missing when it gets something wrong because it keeps making the same mistakes over and over and over. We all say on Twitter, boy, we got that wrong. And then immediately turn to the next mistake that we're going to make. Yeah. I mean, uh, the thing I 
we try to tell the young reporters at, at the dispatch is be very wary of Twitter because it's where um, the race to be wrong first um, always takes place. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we, we, we're almost out of time here, but, and, and I am not a big believer in the fairness doctrine, um, but you've been very generous in playing ball by responding to my questions about Democrats. I, we have disagreements that remain, but that's fine. Um, but just for a moment here, you know, you're someone who by vocation has to think a little bit more than a little bit about the Republican party and what, what they can or should do to beat Democrats. Right. I mean, the sort of way I'm kind of, I mean, I'm not a political operative. Never, I was never a political operative, but my argument about the democratic party is how they could become a majority party and why I think that would be good. Um, looking at the Republican party right now, I mean, it seems to me the, the cliche that Republicans can't win with Trump and can't win without Trump still seems to be operative, at least in a lot of the country, maybe not all of the country, but a lot of the country. Um, and I was wondering a short from Donald Trump departing this mortal coil or going to another planet or whatever, what in the shorter medium term do you think the GOP could plausibly do? I mean, forget, forget the moral condemnations, which I know we, you know, see eye to eye on, on a lot of this stuff, but like, as a matter of practical politics, do you think the path that say Kevin McCarthy is making is taking as cynical as you might think it is, or as cynical as you might think Mitch McConnell is being in all of this or hypocritical or morally flawed, whatever. Do you think it's the smart path as a matter of pure unadulterated politics, or is there a smarter path that they could be taking, but for reasons having to do with the internal culture of the GOP, it, the bubble just doesn't let people see it. And sort of the same way that that's sort of your argument about why Biden can't do the things I want him to do is because it's just not where the culture, the milieu of the democratic party is. What if you could actually provide advice to the Republican party to claw their way back into, um, onto a path of being the majority party? What, what would that look like? I do believe that, um, look, I don't think there is a, I don't think the Republican party exists anymore. I don't, we can give a name, it needs a new name, but it's not the Republican party that we all once knew. It's something different. I think if current Republican leaders want to bring back the what was once the Republican Party, they need to do it. They need to reject what exists, and it's going to be painful. Um, I don't think the answer to your question is going to be evident for at least two more election cycles. I think we, I think we got to take a look at how this midterm plays out, and I think we got to see how the next presidential um, uh, plays out. If there is a path for it to turn the corner, they have to be aggressive about it, though. It may not work, but they have to be aggressive about it. What they are doing right now, look, in 2016, Donald Trump defeated the Republican Party before he defeated the Democratic Party. Um, and I feel like uh, the party is continuing to submit, right? It is continuing um, uh, uh to appease his takeover. I get it because uh, he still has a huge hold on 
a lot of Republicans. But what if, what if Republican Party leadership were, were to just ignore him? Were to take the advice of those who say, you know what, elections are about the future and not the past. And we're going to go out there and run a campaign against Joe Biden that focuses on where we disagree about the size and scope of government, which you and I are both old enough to remember when that was the big disagreement in, mm -hmm. in political contests. And we were on opposite sides back then. Um, oh, we're still on opposite sides okay. now. It's just like no, no one's having that we, argument. No, we're the only two people still having that argument. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. And we're just done. We're done with, with all of that. We're not going to play ball with this election fraud nonsense. We're not if that suddenly became the loudest voice in the room, the Donald Trump is still successful, still holds this voice because he still has the loudest voice in the room. And the reason he still has the loudest voice in the room is because everyone else keeps handing their megaphones to him mm -hmm. to, in order to further amplify his voice. What if they said, no, I'm going to hold on to mine and we're all going to combine our megaphones over here. Would Republican primary voters start to focus on what they are saying a little bit more and ignore what he does. There's an argument to be made that they might. And you could have more of, uh, you know, you could, you could sort of get back to being a, a party that is concerned about anything other than the most reliable primary voters. Um, but it might not work. We won't know that. I think for a, if they were to try that, I think it would take at least two election cycles to know if it, if it will work. In the absence of the, them doing that, I don't see how it can work. I don't mm -hmm. see how the party can turn the corner until he is completely out of the picture. Until he decides to go do something entirely different, you know, or, or whatever. Um, I, I do think this. I do think he is... Um, a unique enough voice that I don't think what he does and how he does it is transferable. Mm -hmm. um, so while we see lots of mini Trumps at the congressional uh, level and down in, um, in local politics and even in some statewide politics, I don't think anyone can, you know, and this goes back to, you know, what some of his Republican primary opponents were saying in 2016, we can't, be like Trump, you know, I'm, I, if we try to adopt his tactics, we're never going to be, we're never going to do it the way he does it. So we shouldn't even try. I, I don't think what he does is transferable to someone else. I think what he does there, I think there are some people who are smarter than he is who might try and that worries me. Um, but in any of those cases, I don't see a path where they expand their electorate. And I still believe politics are about addition and not subtraction. I do believe that for them to become a, a truly competitive majority party, they would need to expand their electorate. And we're not seeing their ability to do that right now. Um, so they've got to just kind of reject him or at least ignore him and move on to something else to win over some of those people who voted for Biden because they hated Trump but are a little squeamish about, about whatever. They like Biden, but they're squeamish about something. 
Um, and I don't know how they do it. I hope they find it. And I say this as, as, as you know me, I'm a, I'm a partisan Democrat. I believe that we are at our, be- are at our best with two strong parties. I think my party is better when your party is strong and vice versa. Um, so I hope they, they get back to it. But uh, right now, they have a, a shrinking window to do it. And if they fail, um, I don't know what happens. You could probably answer that better than I. Will there still be a singular Republican party? Will I, I have never believed that there could be a viable third party. I'm beginning to wonder for the first time in my life if there's an opportunity for that. Will, you know, or do we just accept that half of the country believes in that style of, of politics and adjust accordingly? I, I don't know, but I think yeah, there's, a, there's a shrinking window that's still going to take a couple of cycles to figure out. Yeah, I, I think that's the closest the it's, it's, it's the closest you can get to answering the question at this point. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, sometimes I think the Republican party is going to stick around in the sense that there will be a party called the Republican party for a while. Um, and if not, and it implodes, there will be another party called something else that will still capture some of that coalition and some of some parts of the democratic coalition. But the we know from the era of good feelings, you know, the system is just simply structured to be a two party country. And, right. um, and historically, at least, parties that lose a bunch of times either get the toxins out of the system eventually and restructure themselves. Um, and so, like, long term, I can be a little optimistic about it all, uh, but short term. You know, it's just impossible to know whether, you know, like how long it takes for the Republican Party to sort of come to its senses on this stuff. Even if, and I'm not talking about like they all have to agree with all my policy positions, but, you know, I watched Trump down in Texas at that, that, that border event. And he's, he's bragging again about how he passed a test designed to see if he has dementia. And, you know, and he's saying how he aced it and how Biden couldn't pass it. And at the same time, Trump is saying that there were 35 questions on a test that last I checked had like 11 questions. And it's not an intelligence test. It's, you know, it's he's and he's still talking about how the election is stolen. And so, you know, all the people who want him to be like talking about the border and border security and immigration and all of these kinds, he can't stick to a message and it's still a cult of personality thing. And that by definition is not transferable. Right. I mean, and, and he can, he can soak up oxygen for as long as he's still alive if he chooses to. And, uh, I, it will take at least another election cycle or two election cycles for Republicans right. to figure out how to ignore him at the minimum. But, you know, Eric Cantor has been talking a lot over the past few years about the disease of short termerism in Washington. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a, a, an example of that. If Kevin, Kevin McCarthy wants to be speaker, so he's willing to do whatever it takes to be speaker. And if that means cozying up to Trump, if that means calling for an investigation into the NSA for, <laughs> uh, for <laughs> spying on cable news hosts, if whatever, 
um, that's what he's doing. I believe that if Kevin McCarthy really wanted to be speaker for more than a cycle, for more than one session of Congress, best thing that could happen to him is for Republicans to lose seats this next election, to mm -hmm. lose seats in the midterm, right? Start to purge the party of these toxins who cannot, uh, that, that the a majority of the American people do not uh, um, accept and approve of. Um, start, you know, be able to say, this is not our future and start running more, you know, reasonable Republicans in some of these districts. Um, if that's the case, then when Republicans do retake the speakership, the speaker's gavel at some point, they've got a shot at, I think, holding it for a little mm -hmm. while. But I don't, even if he were to win it this next time, I think it, it's, it's short term. Yeah, no, I think that's probably right. All right, Mo. I mean, we could do this all day. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And um, and I um, hope you'll come back again. Always enjoy it. Thanks for having me. All right. So now we are in the less Alethi phase of the podcast. Uh, no more Mo Alethi. Um, I'm going to just grind that wordplay into the ground. Um, always good to talk to him. Obviously, I have, I have my disagreements, but I, I, I'm going to try not to sort of uh, do cleanup after he leaves because that's kind of unfair. Um, and uh, but I think we basically agree we we can't have nice things for a while. Um, and uh, beyond that, uh, not sure how next week is going to work because I'm go I'm going away for Fourth of July. But we will f we will we will meet all of our contractual obligations, and um, we are uh, um, still in a a post Nick Pompello world and um, we'll figure out how to deal with all that when the time comes. But uh, thanks for listening. Please, if you can become a, a paid member of the dispatch community, it would um, be great. Uh, we have such um, ambitions and uh, central to those ambitions is converting people who like what we're doing from being uh, I don't, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but sort of free riders into, um, bought in members of the community. And so if you like this podcast or you like the other podcasts, or if you like David French or Sarah Isger or, or even Steve Hayes, um, uh, please come to, uh, um, come to our aid, uh, for, uh, we have bold ambitions ahead. And, uh, with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.